so after 24 years of, of doing the same thing, uh, there, there's there's always a need or this, this this kind of fleeting moment of going, you know, let's let's pack it up and and and, and go do something else. Hello and welcome to Expedition Business, where we discuss the highs and lows of our inspirational entrepreneurs and how on earth they keep the flame of adventure burning. Today we have the honor of talking to Eric Vermeulen, a very colorful character on a gray winter's morning. International speaker, ice crusher, writer of award-winning operas, he can tread water for three days in a row, woo women with his trombone, and sleeps once a week. On weekends, to let off steam, he participates in full contact origami. And he has even spoken to Elvis, or at least that is what the synopsis is from his Facebook profile. But before we get to Eric to elaborate on what he does to keep his flame burning, I want to remind you to subscribe to Expedition Business on your favorite podcast platform and share it with all your friends and family. They might start liking you if you do. Today's episode is sponsored by New Echo Solar because life is too short for load-shedding nightmares. Find the details in the notes to this podcast. And I might add at this point that their solar system is the reason why we can record this session today because I just can't afford to have to reschedule recordings or miss a deadline. But back to Eric. Eric, what did I miss in your bio? <laughs> uh, that bio I wrote probably 15 years ago when I just like popped onto social media and Facebook became a thing and I've actually completely forgotten about it. But the point is, you know, there's always time in life for uh, humor, for just looking at things a little bit differently. Uh, so that's essentially where that comes from. Okay. Well, I find it very, very amusing. And I like the part where you talked about treading water for three days in a row. Can that be true? <laughs> No, definitely not. Look, I mean, as as a, as a high school student, I, I did swim at a fairly uh, senior level, but never played water polo. And I don't think I've ever actually attempted treading water for any particular length of time. But, you know, the, our conversation and I think where this is about to go is probably going to be a lot like treading water. Not our conversation, <laughs> but this whole entrepreneur. But, you know, the whole entrepreneurial um mindset and aspect and I think often entrepreneurs do get into that spot where they feel like they're just treading water and it's just about keeping their head above and you know if you look at the last three years um, an old business partner of mine last year or the year before actually remarked and said that at this point if you're not bankrupt you're winning. <laughs> very very true but Eric just take us a bit back to how on earth did you get to do what you are doing? I wish I could say it was by design. Um, it was by complete and utter default. Uh, my sort of initial career choice, uh, you know, you remember those school days where you sat with your guidance teacher and they said to you, so what do you want to be? And I said to her, I want to be a doctor. She said, don't talk nonsense. Have you seen your maths and science marks? I'm like, of course I've seen them uh, and stop sounding like my parents. But <laughs> so my first career choice was to go into medicine. And obviously I never got close to getting admission for that. So I went to study human movement science um, and loaded that as medically as possible. But while I was studying that, um, again, just at that time already with this sort of adventure background um, of wanting to go outside and do hikes. And I remember in high school planning an expedition to Annapurna in Nepal. Uh -huh. And um, during my studies in human movement science, I then kind of got sidetracked into this world of adventure-based learning and co-authored a book uh, with one of my lecturers about how we can use adventure experiences in order to build corporate teams uh, and then started my own consultancy in uh, 1999. Wow. So it was completely by accident mm, mm. <laughs> and, and we're still at it. And how many years have you been doing this now? 
Well, you know, we started with the adventure uh, education stuff and uh, how to use adventure experiences to build teams. That was about 1995, 1996. Uh, and I started Ridgeline, my current consultancy, in January 1999. So that's 24, 26 years. Well, that is a long time. Very, very. I've, it almost sounds like that's the age of my eldest child. And I assume it's like a child for you. Uh, yeah, although the, 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 the difference, I think, with, with kids, and, and I can't really speak of great authority with adult kids because at my age I've got eight-year-old twins, which is what <laughs> happens when you have a bunch of other priorities. But, you know, I think kids get relatively easier as they get into their 20s. They might not cost you less, but they definitely get a little bit easier. Um, I don't think business ever gets easier. Uh, and particularly, you know, when you are kind of get these curve balls from the last couple of years thrown at you. So, yeah, you know, I've, I've got a, a young adult kid um, in terms of a business. Mm. But, yeah, it, it, you know, I, I still don't I'm still not in a position where, you know, people would go and Google, I guess, my business and go, we have to work with this guy. Uh, you know, there, there's still a lot of the treading water, the day-to-day process-orientated um, actions and behaviors that's required in, in running a successful business. Do you want to maybe just quickly, for those people who don't know your business yet, just a quick elevator pitch on what you do? So essentially, Ridgeline is a behavioral strategy consulting business, and we work with companies to help them create the behaviors that allow them to be more profitable. In other words, kind of building the brand from the inside out, because, you know, it's like building this bridge between marketing and HR, and marketing will tell the world how awesome your business is, and then it's up to HR or the people in the business to deliver on that promise. So if you think of the bank that says, how can we help you on a billboard? Mm -hmm. And then that whole mindset falls completely flat when you walk into a branch and no one's interested in helping you. Mm -hmm. uh, what I do with companies is I help them from a behavioral culture perspective to create the culture and the behaviors that will allow them to live their brand and be successful. So we work a lot with companies that experience a, a lot of growth, companies that have gone through a rebrand. And in the last uh, five or six years, we've done a lot of work in the mergers and acquisition space. Okay. And as far as I understand, you also take or give people the opportunity to go on your expeditions as part of this whole team building, brand building exercise. Yes, and it's kind of a marriage between two businesses. Um, so Ridgeline, which is the consulting business, and then I've also been a partner for many years and now I've tried to own uh, an expedition travel business called Explore. Mm -hmm. And through Explore, we lead expeditions globally to some of the seven summits. Uh, and that allows, that affords people the opportunity to uh, climb Kilimanjaro, Aconcagua, Elbrus in Russia. Well, maybe not mm -hmm. right now. Mm -hmm. um, the Finstein Antarctica, we walk to the South Pole, we mountain bike across Tibet. Uh, so we had a whole bunch of adventures under that, and under the Explore brand. Wow. And what I'm loving is how I can bring these two worlds together to use the principles that we use on expeditions to allow people to experience success there, come home alive with all their mm -hmm. fingers and all their toes, and then use those same principles in building businesses and, and the behaviors with, and, and cultures with, within the businesses of the clients that I serve. You've got an expedition coming up to Kilimanjaro in August, if I'm correct? Yes, yes. And on 19th of August, I take 17 people to Kilimanjaro, about 12 of them being um, high school students. Well, and who pays for this? Uh, they do, their parents. <laughs> oh, my greatness. Okay. It, it was so interesting. You know, um, the, the, the school contacted me in January. said, listen, we're, we're about to book with a travel agent to, to go and climb Kili, but we here we have to speak to you and get some advice first. And at the end of coffee, the organizer basically said, look, we're not going with a travel agent. We want that personal touch. We want that, um, you know, that authentic experience and... The, the, the personal experience and guiding that, 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 that I would offer. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And we, we we put a price down, and actually one family, mom, dad, and both kids have have signed up, and 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 they're going. Wow, I would love to do that with my kids one day. But tell me quickly, you've mentioned bringing people back with all their fingers and toes. Have has it ever happened that um, they didn't come back with all their fingers and toes? Not on any of our expeditions, no. Okay. So we are safe to book with you. Absolutely. It's, it's, it's kind of a tongue-in-cheek selling point. And, you know, in, in, in the big scheme of things, you know, lots of people come back from mountaineering expeditions with all their fingers and all their toes. But uh, as, as always, you know, it's, it's, it's the negative stuff that always attracts a lot of media attention and, and mm. ends up front and center. Mm. Notwithstanding mm. the fact, though, that we have to accept and understand that going to mountains holds inherent risk uh, and, and it only becomes life-threatening or a, a, a negative risk when you don't respect the environment that you're going in to and you don't you know, your, your goals for going are, mm. are incorrect mm. Mm. Eric you've also got another expedition to South America I think early next year coming up Yes, um, Aconcagua is the second highest of the seven summits, and we climb that in January every year because uh, it's obviously summer in the Southern Hemisphere. And what I love about Aconcagua, apart from the fact that it is properly tough uh, because it's a true expedition-style mountain, what I really love about it is that it's the highest peak outside of Asia, uh, the highest peak in the Southern Hemisphere. And so this funny little thing is that if you summit, uh, there's a 99.9999999% chance that you're the highest person standing on this planet because no one's climbing the Asian 8,000-meter peaks that are higher in winter anymore. The Norwegians mm-hmm. and Scandinavians are done with that. So there's a really good chance that if you summit Aconcagua, you're the highest person standing on, on Mother Earth, well, <laughs> which is quite a, a weird fact. And I assume you have done that summit Yes, yes, we have. Okay. But Eric, it sounds like a very big portion of your work and your expeditions is to help other people to stay positive and act positive. I assume you never get times when you just want to pack up and go home. Oh, no, all the time. eh? (laughs) (laughs) After after 24 years of, of doing the same thing, uh, there, there's there's always a need or this, this this kind of fleeting moments of going you know let's let's pack it up and 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 go do something else, and I guess it's everyone feels that way not only entrepreneurs you know but people who are employed and that sort of thing as well and I think the reason that happens is uh, that we all yearn intrinsically without always acknowledging it we're all yearning for this concept of adventure. Mm-hmm. And when we were doing the research for the for the book in, in, in the mid-90s, uh, we looked at, you know, the constructs of this concept called adventure. Mm-hmm. And for, for many people, adventure is defined by uh, an, an excursion, a set of activities, going to a place. But what we actually realized is that adventure is, uh, the, the, the construct of adventure is actually any endeavor of which the outcome is uncertain, mm-hmm. which means that your business is an adventure, your life is an adventure, because every day is uncertain. We, we, we don't see that uncertainty because we are so mired in our rituals and routines that we firmly believe that tomorrow will be there. But you've got every chance of, you know, when you drive to the mall this morning or to work or home from the office, there's every chance that you could not arrive home uh, mm-hmm. from a health issue, uh, a, a motor vehicle accident. You know, life is uncertain. But mm-hmm. we don't realize that because our whole life is built around rituals and routines. So if we go back uh, three years to, to lockdown and, and the pandemic, I'm guessing every, a lot of people in your network, as in mine, suddenly woke up in the morning and thinking, oh, geez, life is fragile. We could die. Mm-hmm. But it's no, it's no less fragile now than it was then. The reason we suddenly had this epiphany that, you know, we could die today is that 
our rituals and routines were instantaneously removed from our lives. We don't think about our mortality because we wake up at the same time every morning. We race through our morning routine. We get the kids dressed. We have breakfast. We get in the car. We fight traffic. We drop the kids at school. We go to work. We sit in the same meetings. We see the same people. And we just do that over and over again. And mm -hmm. that's why we're not in touch with our mortality. That's why we believe, oh, we can do it tomorrow, the next day, the day after, next month, next year. Mm. But the minute we realize that we can't, we, we don't have any guarantee that we'll be here tomorrow, next week, next month, or next year, that changes our outlook on life. Absolutely. But Eric, just coming back to your own mortality and your own times when you're not feeling as positive, what are the fun and exciting ways that you use to regroup, refocus, and rejuvenate yourself? I wouldn't say they're all fun and exciting ways, right? Okay. <laughs> um, no, look, for, for, for me, because I've always been an active person, um, a part of that routine. Um, we, so let's start by saying routines keep us motivated um, and grounded. So a big part of my routine is, is training and exercise. Uh, so obviously I need to be in some sort of physical shape to, to lead expeditions mm -hmm. uh, regularly. Um, but I also do that because I like to challenge myself occasionally. You know, every two or three years, I, I, I look for a personal challenge um, and, and, and I go and do that. So, like, the first thing to keep motivated is just to understand my routines. Secondly is to see, well, then how do I create endorphins um, and excitement in, 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 in my life? So it could be entering a race. It could be chasing a new client. It could be looking to develop a new product uh, and, and how we can take that to, 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 to market. Okay. Uh, the third thing is to, in order to get motivated, I guess, to remind myself of the purpose and meaning what I do has. Um, and in all, in 2020, I created a, a, a little challenge. Um, well, I wanted to walk 200 kilometers across my Kharik pans, unsupported, mm -hmm. unassisted. And came up with this idea in 2019. Some cricketers got to hear about it. They wanted to join me. But 2020 with lockdown, when I was looking for sponsorship for, for, for this little physical challenge, um, I spoke to a guy to help me find the sponsorship. And on that Zoom call with the virtual beer, we created what became known as the Battle of the Sports. Uh -huh. And in September and October um, 2020, I walked 800 kilometers uh, around the Northern Cape in, on Fremierkpan, uh, accompanied for 200 kilometers at a time by some of South Africa's biggest sporting heroes. Mm -hmm. And um, w w what I found with that you know, so like 200 kilometers is, 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 is quite a long way. And there was this debate leading up to the event, which was broadcast on Supersport and, and you know, became a very well-watched reality TV series. Uh, but there was this debate over why 200 kilometers. And why didn't we just make it 100 miles, 160 Ks? And the reason for sticking to 200 Ks is it would almost force everybody to be out in the middle of nowhere for a second and a third night, mm -hmm. uh, particularly that third night. M most people can be cope with discomfort for 24 hours or two days. But the minute it stretches beyond that, um, discomfort becomes a real problem. Um, and I remember on the first lap of this, uh, we had team rugby with John Smith and Yanisha Mungi and Skulk Brits. So I spent uh, almost four days on a salt pan with three hookers. Uh, that's just lots a little joke. Lots of fun. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it was lots of fun. But the guy's feet took proper strain. And okay. we were at about a kilometer, 120, and lying half dead, um, not really, but like really battling and, and mm -hmm. suffering with sore feet and exhaustion, lying on the salt pan, just under this little bit of shade provided by the medical support vehicle that was there, but didn't give us any support, if, if, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And the guys were really talking about this, you know, I could see how tough it was. But what was interesting is that nobody spoke about quitting. 
and and that's kind of one of those rules that are put in place on 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 these kind of things. Because imagine there are four of us, and the what we're all suffering as much as everybody else, even though some of us might not show it. But the minute one person talks about quitting, that gives the next person permission to agree with it. Mm-hmm. And so now you've got two people out of four. That's fifty percent that that might say, "Yeah, you know what? You're right. Let's just pack it in, get in the car, and 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 and, and go home." Then it becomes an easy decision to quit. But the reason I discovered on, on this uh, Battle of the Sports and on other events that, 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 that I've created is that people don't quit. People push harder, further, longer when they have a purpose beyond themselves. Absolutely. And that, so, you know, that, that's kind of the, the, that one of those angles is that w- w- when I feel demotivated and feel like packing it in and, and feel like going to get a, get a, a day job, um, it, for me, it's, it's around this purpose, um, particularly around the expedition business where, the, you know, that purpose for me is to provide a platform for other people to move out of their comfort zone mm. to, 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 to grow. We, I presented a, a trail running race called the Munger Trail for three years, 400 kilometers nonstop trail run. Mm-hmm. And in the very first year, uh, we had two, so the cutoff was 120 hours. Uh, and we had two athletes get to the last race village at Burke's Lake Potholes mm-hmm. at about eight o'clock in the morning. Cutoff was 12 noon. So they had four hours to cover the last 20 kilometers all along the rim of the Blader River Canyon. And Rechart Janse van Rensburg, I think that was his surname, um, Rechart out of uh, Jeffries made it inside the last minute. Wow. And the, the other person who was there with him just kind of faded. Uh, and what was so interesting is so both athletes were pretty wrecked. They'd done exactly the same time up to that last race village at, at Berksluck. Mm. What was it that pushed one to go further, harder, stronger, mm. and not the other one, given the same set of circumstances. Yes. And it came and it came out that Rechart had entered Munger Trail and was doing this race to raise funds for the NSRI in, 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 in Jeffreys Bay. It was okay. a stark reminder that when you have a purpose beyond that, and it's not about letting yourself down, but it's about creating meaning for others, mm. you're able to go so much further. Absolutely. What's interesting is that um, nowadays something like a 200 mile is a fairly common event and it's becoming more common as we go along. More people enter 200 mile trail races nowadays. Is it because Um, somebody else has done it before? Look, when we started Munga Trail, no one had done anything like that um, in, 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 in South Africa. Uh, and so it was pretty much a groundbreaking effort. Mm-hmm. Now, there, a lot of these races have popped up. I wouldn't say or I wouldn't agree that there are more people entering 200 milers. If you look at some of those races, or in fact all of them, they are hybrid races. So there's the 200-mile option, there's a 100-mile option, there's a 100-kilometer option, there's a 50-kilometer option. Mm. And when you look at the spread of entries, you're still – so we had um, – on Munger Trail, I think the first year we had about 30 entries um, and then it dwindled to about 18 in the third year. And then, tw- and then COVID hit um, in, when we were going to have the fourth edition in 2020. Now, looking at the numbers on the current races, those ultra-distance numbers are not increasing. Um, they're still around the 20 um, entry mark for the 400K, the 200-kilometer, the 200-mile races. Um, and those events are making the numbers from the shorter races. Mm-hmm. Okay, interesting. Um, just a quick question. What would be your major challenges that you have faced in your career, and how did you get over it? I think as a speaker and, and, and a consultant, the main challenge is twofold. I think one is standing out from the crowd. Um, consulting, speaking, even the expedition space have relatively low barriers to entry. 
Mm-hmm. You know, when I started as, as, as an international keynote speaker in, in 1999, the only way to get onto a platform was to find yourself a speaker's agent or a speaker's bureau, um, convince them about your right to stand on a stage and deliver a message, and then they would market you. Uh, since then, of course, the internet has exploded, and now literally everybody, anybody, um, can build a website, call themselves a speaker, and and just just kind of clutter the market mm-hmm. uh, with with often with with very little insight and, and very little um, gravity or gravitas to 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 their message. So mm-hmm. that's the first thing is 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 is, is to stand out. Um, okay. And 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 then the second thing is to constantly create compelling content. Mm. You know, there is so much research in the world. There is so much knowledge. Um, and the, the, the challenge is to marry that um, plethora of information with a compelling message um, and then to deliver it to companies as a consultant and as a speaker through simplifying that complexity and making the content and the message uh, truly accessible. And this sounds quite abstract, but it's actually applicable to any business because every business as, as a, that you start as, as an entrepreneur should be revolving around a real problem that you solve for your customers. Mm-hmm. If you don't know what that problem is that, that you're solving, you're literally falling into this um, trap of trying to be everything to everyone or trying to be just like everybody else. And, and, and I think most entrepreneurs kind of see what, what, what someone else is doing and they go, yeah, that looks really cool. I think I should do that. Mm. Um, and, and so what is it that, that, that makes you stand out? What makes you stand out is firstly the problem that you solve and then the process your unique way of solving that problem. And when we quantify those two, that allows us to build a strong brand for our entrepreneurial business, and that allows us to access the market. And I suppose you've got lots of experience battling this out on a day-to-day basis. Well, it, it, never, it, it never stops, right? Um, because the, 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 there's always a new challenge. There's always a new battle to fight. And one of those key principles that, 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 that I live by and that we use on mountains and, and, and in business is this whole principle of finding purpose in the process. You know, to use, if, if we use the mountain analogy, altitude will kill you. There's no doubt about that. You know, you, you might recall six or seven years ago, South African rally driver um, Gugu Zulu yes. died on Kili. And South Africans were amazed. And we were getting so many questions like, how can someone die on Kili? It's a little hill in our backyard. Mm. No, it's not. Kili is a 6,000 meter high mountain. Okay, 5,800. But it is dangerous. Mm. And when you don't understand the process of getting to a summit, um, that is going to kill you. And so interestingly, one of the first things I do when someone signs up to do to go to a mountain with me or when we look at working with companies in, in, in the business consulting space is I reframe the victory condition. Mm-hmm. If, you know, for, for many people, lots of people want to go and climb Kili. And I say, them, why do you want to climb Kili? And they say, because I want to stand on the summit. Like, why do you want to stand on the summit? You know, if it's, 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 it's a little piece of earth, like every other piece of earth, what is it that's drawing you to stand on this particular piece of earth? And if, and, and so they say, you know, like, yeah, but it's about a personal challenge, but then make it the personal challenge. Don't define the victory condition by an outcome. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if, if your mountaineering expedition is defined by this outcome, there's a high chance it's going to kill you because you're not going to respect the process. If your business life is defined by an outcome, by an income, by a balance sheet, uh, it's not going to be long before you fall prey to fraud, corruption, because that outcome eventually becomes uh, the only thing you chase and you will do anything to achieve that outcome. Mm. So there's, there's business death around that as there is like personal death 
around chasing personal outcomes. Fall in love with the process. Mm-hmm. And know the why. Yes. And, and so what we find is that by redefining the victory condition into an experience rather than an outcome, we actually end up getting more people to summits uh, than the average on, of expeditions on the mountains that we guide. We turn fewer people back. Uh, people are more inclined to turn themselves back. And the third fascinating as result of reframing uh, the victory condition is that if somebody turns themselves back, they are very likely to come back to the same mountain with us in the future or to another mountain. They don't leave their defeated. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, at the end of the day, mountains are weird things because it takes you, in the case of Aconcagua, almost three weeks to get to this little piece of earth that you call the summit. And what do you do when you get there? Well, firstly, you feel terrible. Uh, you have a look around, maybe enjoy the view if it's not cloudy and overcast. And take um, a few and then photos. You, yes. Thirdly, you take a selfie or two. And then you turn around and you go right back the same way that you came up. And what took you over two weeks to get up takes you a day and a half to get down. Like, seriously, what is the point? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> the point is that you come back to the same place, but you come back as a different person. So it's about the process. It's about the experience. It's not about standing on this little piece of earth. Yep, definitely. Eric, just quickly, what would be your biggest disappointments that you had to face in your life and specifically in your business? Oh, gosh. Um, I'm not one to dwell on on, on disappointments. Um, the reason being, disappointments are part of the process. And if you look back on your life, anybody for that matter, you will fail far more often than you succeed. That's a given. I work with sports teams as, as team catalyst and, 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 and mind coach. Uh-huh. And dealing with these young professional sportsmen, um, firstly, they're still battling to distinguish between life and sport. <laughs> you know, they're saying that, you know, but uh, sport is my life. No, it's not. Uh, your life is your life. Sport is just part of it. Uh-huh. But, um, you know, I, I speak to these young sportsmen, uh, cricketers in particular, and they, they really battle to come to grips with this concept that, um, they will fail at every innings because you will bat until you're out. And they equate losing your wicket with failing. Mm-hmm. And it's the same in business. If, if you're in sales, oh, gosh, I hate sales. Like, seriously, it, 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 it just, like, freaks me out. But you, you're going to get far more no's than you are going to get yeses. So mm-hmm. if we get into this mindset of saying, well, um, you know, oh, gosh, Failure is so bad, yada, yada. Then you are going to just become negative and shut, shut your business down. Mm-hmm. The fact is that you learn nothing from success. You learn everything from failure. Absolutely. And then figuring out how to do it differently next time around. Okay, so what would be examples of one or two of your failures? If you can remember them. Because it does sound like you, they don't exist anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Look, I'm not great at relationships, right? (laughs) So all my ex-wives would agree that um, (laughs) marriage is probably one of those things that that, that, that I fail at. Um, But from a business and a mountaineering perspective, um, I mean, there are times, so uh, 2020s at Concagua Expedition, I got really sick on on the mountain and I didn't summit, mm-hmm. uh, which was kind of, you know, could be seen as, as as a failure. But I still got more than fifty percent of the team that I was leading um, to to summit. And okay. I think from the, the the kind of learning from from that sort of failure is that, you know, the leaders and entrepreneurs cannot make it all about themselves, and it's it's around. As a leader, how you guide the people that you lead in order for them to achieve their pinnacle mm. or their victory condition. So how much do we empower them? And, you know, I've always taken that approach of on the expeditions and in business. The people who work for me, the people I lead on expeditions, give them as much information as possible to allow them to make their own decisions. Mm. So- and, you know, 
and so, 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 so looking back, we, we think that I might have actually had COVID on Aconcagua in January 2020. But I turned myself back the day before, you know, the, the morning that we would have gone up to summit camp. Mm-hmm. But by then, I'd put the team in place. We, we'd had all our um, logistics in place. The team literally just had to um, get to summit camp and follow the process, find that purpose in the process for, for summit day. And I turned myself back. I went on to base camp uh, and, and, and got helicoptered out. So, you know, and yeah, how does we can that see that. Feel if you in a helicopter and you know the people that you've taken there is being left behind. How do you feel? It it, it requires so the, the the first reaction is to feel like gosh I failed then. Mm. But the second then when you when I begin to unpack it, um, I've equipped them to achieve anything they could achieve. Um, I've, I've equipped them to meet their, the standards of the victory condition that, that we've set for them. That was the first thing. The second thing is, if I'd stayed with them and I deteriorated uh, and gotten incapacitated or died, that compounds the problem that they have and they don't have the skills to deal with that. Mm-hmm. So keeping you know, the purpose of allowing them to have an experience that pushes their comfort zone um, and achieve their victory condition. Looking at back like that, I made the right call because I can't be their problem. Um, and and so, you know, th- th- that was that. Um, but if you die I've, on that summit, you don't have any problems anymore. True. Um, you're absolutely right. I don't have any problems. <laughs> you, you remind me of, of a discussion I had with um, my... Uh, one of my ex-wives, ex-husbands. <laughs> it, it gets complicated, right? He, okay. he, he, was a, he, he was a banker and he was like, oh, no, Eric, but you've got to get like heaps of life insurance and, and, and because, you know, when you die. And I'm like, but Harry, if I'm dead, it's not my problem. <laughs> <laughs> it's not your problem <laughs> It's a very flippant way to look at it. But Absolutely. You're right, you know. But speaking um, of family, you are busy with an insane amount of engagements all over the world. How does this fit in with your family time? And I think especially with those cute little twins of yours. So the kids have always known that I travel a lot. Um, and I mean, their mom and I got divorced when just before they or separated just before they turned three. Mm-hmm. So they frame of reference has always been um, dad's house, mom's house, because I don't remember much under the age of three. Um, and the interesting thing, you know, with the kids, I've found is that kids are incredibly resilient and adaptable, far more so than adults. So that's the first thing is that, you know, I make a lot of time for them when I am around. Um, I've moved uh, back to Pretoria closer to them. And so I see them just about every day. They do weekends with me, et cetera. Um, and, and we have a really great relationship. Uh, again, it's not my perspective of that. Uh-huh. Um, but for me, you know, th- th- there's this little thing um, that I try and instill in them that I've codified and, and called the partnership model. And if you think about any relationship, any business, any endeavor, when you first start with it, there's this overwhelming feeling of glee, you know, um, you know, when, when you first met your significant other, uh, they can do no wrong. It's just amazing. It's adventurous. It's, 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 it's awesome. But as the relationship progresses, uh, you begin to realize that along with the glee, there are some fees, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, anyone in a relationship with me, the fee is I travel a lot, sometimes for three, four weeks at a time. Um, and when the fees begin to outweigh the glee in any relationship, think of your business and your client relationships as well. You know, when you, when a client first starts working with you, guaranteed they think you're brilliant. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, um, some of my clients, you know, they put me on 30 days. That's a bit of a fee, quite literally. Um, and when the fees begin to outweigh the glee, we drop below this feeling of awesomeness and we begin to focus on me. I'm not getting enough of this. I'm not getting enough attention. My girlfriend tells me, Eric, you never tell me you love me anymore. 
well, I told you six months ago, and I'll tell you if anything changes. And <laughs> <laughs> oh, she's still with you. Oh, that's just a joke. Um, but when, when, when me, when I become the most important thing in, in a business, in a relationship, the next thing that's easy to then do is to flee. And sometimes in relationships, people flee emotionally, but stay physically. Mm-hmm. But why do we stay together? You know, why? Because in every relationship and in every, in, in every business, you, you've had these ups and downs. You have moments of glee. You have moments where the fees outweigh the glee, where it becomes about me. Why do we stay? We stay in relationships and in business because we can see what's possible through we. Okay. And then we move above this line of awesome. And this is what you know I'm trying to instill with my kids, is that I want them to understand what's possible through we. Um, whether it's them and their mom, whether it's them and me, uh, whether it's the four of us occasionally, you know, um, like going to sports events and concerts and, and you know, being involved in, in, in their life um, and showing them that they create a meaning in my life. Mm, mm. Okay. That sounds like you are one of very few good divorced fathers out there. <laughs> Thank you very much. But let's move on from that topic. <laughs> okay, so you've gone on a number of expeditions around the world. What would be your favorite that you would recommend for someone to do? Two. They're, 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 they're two trips that I absolutely love. And the first is a mountain. And, you know, people often will come to me and say, Eric, I want to do one mountain. Um, to say I've done one of the seven summits, should I do Kili? Mm. And ironically, I say no, uh, because Kili is, it's in our backyard, it's in Africa, it's not much, it's, I mean, it's, it's a slightly different cultural experience, but it's kind of still in our backyard. So if you're going to do one mountain, I would always recommend Elbrus in Russia, because it's a complete cultural immersion and it's, it's, it's just so different to anything else. You, you get to stay in, you know, we, we fly to Moscow. We stay on Red Square. Uh, we fly to Mineral Vodi in the Vosges. And, and it's, it's just an, an amazing mountain. Uh, and then I've alluded to the fact that, you know, mountains are weird because you go up and you come down. And, and we've got one trip that, for me, is, is a journey. So any trip that starts in one place and finishes somewhere else, for me, is far more powerful. Um, as a metaphor for life. Mm -hmm. And we do an empty quarter crossing uh, in the desert in the Middle East, all along the Saudi Arabian border. Uh, we do about 170 kilometers in seven days uh, from uh, west to east across this uh, geographical um, anomaly, I suppose, called the Liwa Crescent uh, mm -hmm. in, in, in Rab al-Khali. So it's, it's a crescent of date farms that you can actually see from space. And we literally walk through this desert, through nothingness, for, for, for seven days and, and, and finish at the seven-star resort called Qasr al-Sarab. So if, you know, those are two, my two most iconic trips. Okay. But you've mentioned the word backyard. Um, a backyard slightly closer than Kili is obviously our country that we've got here in South Africa and all the options um, and I'm just thinking back to, I think it was our very first podcast that we've done with Rena Christel just after himself and um, Ryan Sands did the um, trek around Lesotho. Have you done any local expeditions that you can um, recommend for our people that want to stay local? Um, I don't guide anything locally. Um, not, not, not really. But I mean, so I've, uh, I was part of a team that set the nine peaks record in 2017, uh, mm -hmm. just before. Uh, I mean, that got smashed. <laughs> I think about a month or six weeks after, after, after we did it. But you know, it, it comes back for me to what I said earlier on in our chat was around what is adventure? Adventure is an endeavour of which the outcome is uncertain, and so. 
you know, getting into your car and going on a road trip that you haven't planned um, and just saying, seeing where it takes you. That's an adventure. Um, and, and South Africa is, 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 is full of that. You know, mm -hmm. um, I'm in a team for Adventure Racing World Championships in St. Francis in, in October. And so I've got a couple of ideas of what I want to do, you know, just a couple of stretch events. Um, and what I started doing late last year, also at the request of a client, is dads and lads hiking weekends, uh -huh. where we take dads and their sons uh, and we do like a long weekend, do some bonding, do some guided facilitated discussions, but just enjoy each other's company in nature. Uh, we, we walk about 15 about 30 Ks over the case of, over the course of um, three or four days. And, you know, so that is, again, it subscribes to the construct of adventure, but it's not uh, one of the seven summits or Mafadi or, or, or a real um, uh, nasty smash up physically. It's, it's that good balance between getting out of our comfort zone and, you know, the, 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 all, all we have to do, all we have to aspire to in life is to regularly take small steps out of our comfort zone. If we can become comfortable with being uncomfortable, we set ourselves up for a lifetime of success. Mm -hmm. That is definitely true. But something that intrigues me, um, obviously you're very active on social media and write a lot of things. Have you ever found that over all these years that you've been involved with social media and made passionate statements, have you ever regretted saying anything that you have said? <laughs> have you gone and stalked me back through 2020 and before? Um, so, you know what? No, I've not regretted anything I've said. Um, and the reason for that is, yes, and I've said some very controversial things um, and gotten a lot of flack for it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like the ultimate insult on social media, right, is when someone unfriends you. Like, does that really matter? But um, have I regretted anything? No. And the reason I've not regretted anything is because I will, I, I don't post um, uh, as a knee-jerk reaction. I actually think things through before I post them. Um, and what I post represents my mindset, my opinion, at the time. And yes, they say that opinions are like um, assholes. Everybody has one. But mm -hmm. is my opinion important? I don't know. I don't bother to think whether it's important or not. For me, it's important that I have the ability to express my thinking. And whilst there might be occasions a couple of months, a year, two years, three years later, that my view at the time might change. Uh, mm -hmm. it, it was still my view at the time. And we spoke about, you know, like failures and how that allows us to grow. So, no, I mean, I've, I've never posted something and, and deleted it. Um, uh, and I don't think, yeah. Okay. Interesting. Very interesting. Okay. So if you could be 20 years old again, would you change anything? Uh, yeah, I'd go and get a nice, cushy corporate job, uh, do nine to five, get my bonuses, get my retirement. Okay. You don't believe that, do you? <laughs> no, I don't. I don't. <laughs> Almost like your Facebook um, post that says you only sleep once a week. <laughs> uh, would I do things differently? In, in broad strokes, no. In... Um, granular detail, yes. Um, I would look more carefully at um, contractual obligations. At, uh, I mean, I've been at the wrong end of um, business decisions and partnerships on, 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 on two occasions. I mean, the first business I started uh, with um, two other guys, um, the, the, the one guy literally at a, at a management meeting one evening said to us, look, the business is bankrupt. Um, you two are out. Uh, and, you know, it, it, it cost us like, a, you know, two years of, 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 of work. And, and, and that company is still going. Mm. Uh, and then, you know, the other one, 
was more recently with the Battle of the Sports, where the the, the, the same story happened as well, um, in that the guy who I thought we, we, we were partners in this endeavor um, just kind of hoodwinked me. Um, and, you know, looking back, you can connect the dots because you can always do that in hindsight. Um, you know, so if, if I would do anything differently, it would probably be around um, being more granular in terms of details because uh, mm. I'm not a very detail-oriented person uh, mm. by nature. Obviously, in certain areas, I'm known to be, uh, you know, like planning and taking people on, on multi-week expeditions requires planning and preparation and that stuff. But I'm generally, I'm, I'm, I'm too trusting, you know. That's, that's the problem. Well, it's not a problem. I am who I am. But would I, what would I do differently? I'd look at trust a little bit differently. And mm -hmm. I would certainly be more granular in terms of detail orientation. Okay. I was just thinking while you were talking, especially about contractual side, that daughter of mine that was born in the same year that you started your business is now an attorney, or almost an attorney, and she could help you with your contracts. See, that's the advantages you know, of yeah. kids. They grow up to do something. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um, what would be the number one book that you would recommend to, I think, especially entrepreneurs, people that are in business for themselves? What book would you recommend? There's a book by a guy named Hap Klopp, H-A-P, surname, K-L-O-P-P, Hap Klopp. The book is called The Adventure of Leadership. And Hap Klopp was, and the, the, so the book is about um, the adventure brand, The North Face. And uh, the book details about how Hap Klopp um, took over the initial North Face company from um, the guy who actually started Patagonia. Uh -huh. And how Hap, as CEO of The North Face, built that business up. Um, to it being the global icon that it is today. I mean, he sadly died, I think, about three, four years ago um, in a river rafting accident. But for me, that book is, if you're going to read one book, um, that's the one to read, The Adventure of Leadership. Okay. I will definitely make a note of that. And any specific quotes that you live by or is there a whole bunch of quotes i'm i'm not a big fan of quotes <laughs> and i don't know why probably because i i've got goldfish memory so i never really, really remember them uh but i do come across a lot and i i'm kind of at the point where i'm sort of formulating I suppose some of my own which which, which i publish uh, quite often on, on on my social media but um, I think, you know, for now, the, the kind of concept that, that really just jumps out is this whole idea of um, knowing that your mind will move your body in the direction of your dominant thought. Mm -hmm. Very, very, very true. I suppose you've got a poster of that already. <laughs> uh there's lots of things on my social media and LinkedIn that I create on, on these little posters. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, Eric, what would be your metaphorical mountains that you still want to climb within the next three to five years? Or is it just physical mountains? No, I mean, I, I don't know if they – I mean, so from a physical perspective, I, and I keep getting the question, um, you know, Everest. Do you want to do Everest? And I, I'm not sure I actually still want to do Everest anymore. If it happens, it happens. If it doesn't, uh, it, it, it doesn't. Um, but I do have some physical challenges that, that, that I do want to attempt. From a metaphorical perspective, I think my biggest challenge that I need to figure out in the next five years is um, what I want to do with the business. Uh, and how I want to leave a legacy for my kids. Mm -hmm. So that's sort of the, 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 the metaphorical mountain that, that, that I need to climb. Would you like your kids to follow in your footsteps? Gosh, 
I would like my kids to do what fulfills them and what creates meaning in their life. Okay. And I assume you've taken them on a couple of adventures already. Yeah, we, we head out to the hills um, as, as, as often as we can. Um, but also, you know, just it's, it's, for them, it's not always around finding a massive challenge or, or a big adventure. It's around finding little micro adventures. Mm. And we've, we, we've recently, well, like a couple of months ago, discovered geocaching. And they want to go geocaching every chance we get. What is geocaching? Just, so it's, there's an app. Well, I think there are probably several apps uh, for geocaching. But it's, it's, it's this combination of it's, – it's like a treasure hunt uh -huh. uh, that you download the app and it tells you where these little caches are spread around your neighborhood or, you know, wherever you are. And you get clues and it's around going there and trying to find this little um, – piece of treasure that's been left and it's normally just like a pull box with a list in that you write your name on and then you log on the app that you found it but it requires some thinking some navigation some scratching around deciphering clues uh, they're absolutely loving that so you know that's the kind of little ad adventures that we do and then as i say you know every now and then we do head out for an overnight or head to the head to the mountains to uh, get them outdoors in oh. my in my mind, anything I do with it that reduces screen time is 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 a win. Absolutely, absolutely, and um, yeah, that's an ongoing battle. Even if they become teenagers and students, the screen time is a massive problem. But just it's it's it's, it's 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 so sorry, Christelle. I mean, the screen time thing is so sad, um, and I've seen that not just with kids. I've seen it with adults as well. On, on our mountain expeditions, uh, you know, on, at Concagua, for example, there's a lot of downtime, waiting at base camp, acclimatizing, sitting in tents. And up until, you know, sort of 2020, uh, there would be a lot of social time. And, and I encourage that. So I always take some cards and poker chips uh, to, to, to the mountains that, that, that we're on and that sort of thing. And in 2020, there was a powerful shift in that everyone took their device everyone had downloaded movies and series onto their device and on some of the mountains at base camps and some of the camps there's actually internet wi-fi internet and 2020 on akron it just the social time just didn't happen uh, we'd have dinner together we'd have a chat for 10 15 20 minutes afterwards and everyone would go and get in their sleeping bag and get glued to their screen so it's not just a kid's problem it's a universal problem that, that we're losing our sense of community and, and how to interact with people. Okay, so how are we going to get away from that? Oh, gosh, I wish I knew the answer. I wish I knew the answer. <laughs> okay, speaking just of getting away, a lot of people prefer to leave South Africa for the greener pastures of Europe and Canada, America, Australia. Is that something that's on your radar? Short answer, no. Uh, long answer, I n never say never. Uh, the reason for saying no is I don't believe, uh, load shedding notwithstanding, um, I don't believe you'll get the overall quality of life that you have in South Africa for the price point that you pay, I don't believe you'd get that anywhere else in the world. So that's why, and I mean, I've been working internationally for many years and I just keep bringing the money most, well, bring the money back here and, and, and I live a really fulfilling life here. Um, should you keep your options and things open though? Probably. My kids have Dutch passports, so they have an out. Um, I'm stuck with a green number, so there probably isn't much opportunity at age 50 odd. Uh, to be heading overseas. And you know what? If you think about leaving and if you're happy with dividing your wealth by 20 uh -huh. <laughs> and starting all over again, uh, that's a completely different set of challenges as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So you are staying in South Africa? Yep. For the foreseeable future. Unless a major opportunity comes along. 
<laughs> oh my gosh, my gosh. Okay, so just getting back to your plans for the future. What would be your parting message? I would, my, my parting message would be to embrace an adventure mindset and accept the fact that nothing is confirmed, nothing is given to you, everything is uncertain and live today like it's your last. <laughs>